we talk about self-love a lot, which I think is so lovely. But before self-love, we need to first have self-acceptance and then usually self-respect. And then after that, self-like and then probably self-love. And, you know, it's an ongoing journey. And I think the more that we learn to respect who we are, and I think that one's really key and maybe a bit more tangible than love for a lot of us, we're going to really respect our own time, our decisions, our engagements, and that's going to be really that's going to change how we invest in the relationship, not necessarily how much. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Sarah Kubrick. Sarah is an existential psychotherapist. She's a writer. She's a consultant and a columnist for USA Today. Many of you may know her as millennial.therapist on Instagram, and this is her second time on the podcast. And what I love about Sarah's content is that she takes complex issues such as mental health and relationships and creates content that's easily digestible. It's simple and easy for people to understand. So without further ado, let's get this conversation going and welcome Sarah Kubrick, back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me the second time. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the past couple of years, whether it's through the podcast or just communicating via Instagram. And what I've noticed and appreciated from your content recently is that you've really gone deeper into the subject of relationships. I know you kind of always focused on that, but I've noticed lately that you've really started to put more of your time, energy, and effort into sharing content on relationships. So like what sparked that? Was it something that you noticed in your own practice? Was that something that you went through personally? Was it just insight you were gaining from your own content you were creating? Like what begun that turn for you? Yeah, I, I'm really impressed that you noticed. And I was like, when I saw that question, I was like, oh, is that true? And then I went through Instagram. And I was like, I, I actually think he's right. Look at that. I think it was a conscious shift, maybe not to the extent that I that I was aware of, but a lot of people were experiencing relationship issues during COVID. And I think that for me, it's really important to create content that's impactful and meaningful and something people actually need. And so because there were so many requests to write about relationships and so much engagements on those posts, I just realized like my community really wants to dive deeper into these topics. And, you know, we're not taught like everyone thinks we should have these inherent skills of how to be in a healthy relationship. And that's just a society, something we don't have and something that we should be taught and probably early on, like in high school <laughs> or even earlier. And so because we're you know, missing some of those skills, I thought like, how can I present them in the most accessible, fun way and get the conversation kind of going? At the end of the day, like, we're not really taught these skills in school. We're not taught these skills in life. I think if people are lucky, they'll read a book after they go through heartbreak, or maybe they're reading a book before they're getting married. Like sometimes they're reading it before it's almost too late. And I think the, the beautiful thing that you do as well is you tie in the mental health aspect to it. Because as we all know, like relationships, whether it's a relationship with ourselves, whether it's a relationship to, to a partner or our friends, as much as we don't want to admit it, they really impact our mental health. So what do you, why do you think that relationships, whether specifically with other people, like why does it impact our mental health that if so much so that if the relationships in our lives are good, that our mental health seems to be good, if they're bad, it seems to bring our self-esteem and our mental health down. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it also ties into your very first question, like, why do I talk more about relationships now? And I think it's because relationships are often a mirror to who we are. And I'm really big on authenticity and figuring out that sense of self. And for me, I realized that one of the easiest, most accessible ways for people to learn about themselves was actually through relationships. And I think this happens almost for everyone when they're in a really crappy relationship or a really good one, or they're they're feeling slightly triggered that they're asked to do something or they articulate a boundary. They go, oh, wow, 
I am getting a clear understanding of myself, or hopefully that's what's happening. And so I don't think that there we can separate who we are from the people around us. As individualistic as we want to be, I don't think we create our sense of self in isolation. And so, which means that the people around us have a very significant say and impact in who we are becoming. And this is why we have to be so careful with who we surround ourselves with. So that being said, when these people, you know, leave the relationship or there's a rapture in the relationship, that's a big deal because oftentimes we need to reassess who we are in those moments, what our existence is without these people. And I think that there is something very innately human about wanting to be loved and wanting to belong. And none of these things are bad. They're very, you know, healthy for us. We need that sense of connection. So it's it's a really big deal when relationships end. I think we've often downplayed it, but there is genuine grief. There's genuine, often like a little existential anxiety that comes with it or identity crisis that comes with it. And so if we feel rejected for who we are and we're not feeling supported and whatever it is, all of that will ultimately impact our mental health. Yeah, you brought up some really good points. And I think the first is that we're meant to like coexist as people. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to surround ourselves with other people that hopefully have like-minded interests and values. And that when we're not doing that, we can definitely feel ourselves um, becoming a lesser version of, of who we are. And you talked about the sense of self and you talked about like the importance of learning who we are in relationships. I think that can be challenging at times for people because a lot of times what happens is when they get into a relationship, they're infatuated, not just with their partner, but with the idea of this relationship and where this relationship might go. Because I mean, there's many people that they're getting into a relationship and they're like, okay, like if this goes on long enough, we're going to get married. We're going to have kids. And they see like this future like unfolding before their eyes. And there's other people that maybe that's not their goal and that's okay as well. But they still begin to idolize this relationship because it's something that they've always wanted. So how can somebody begin to develop that sense of self in a way that is going to be efficient for them when they're in a relationship or maybe it's before they're in a relationship to make sure that they are staying true to themselves, their own boundaries, their own, their values when they're in this relationship. You were always going to be in progress, which means you'll never have this amazing point in your life where you're just so perfect and so self-actualized and now you're ready to date. I, I think that's a myth. However, I do think that people have certain points in their life where they're more equipped to be in a relationship than others. I think that's a, you know, that's pretty fair to say. And if you are really struggling to figure out who you are, it might be dangerous for you to be in a relationship in the sense of your sense of identity might be wrapped up in that relationship more than it's healthy for you. And so I think being very honest with ourselves of like, am I ready to be in a relationship? Do I feel rooted and grounded enough in who I am? to begin one. And I always think like, if you don't know who you are, who is your partner in a relationship with? This is such like, for me, it's such an interesting question. Like, are they dating someone you're projecting? Are they dating, you know, a version of you that doesn't feel genuine? Who are they in a relationship with? And so I think if you can kind of start this process before getting into a relationship, it might be a bit easier for you. But I also think we need to change the narrative of when we are in a relationship where we often think that sense of autonomy or self is a threat to the cohesion of the relationship. And this is why people make significant sacrifices that end up violating their sense of self, rather than realizing the more you stick to who you are, and the more you're true to that version of yourself, chances are the relationship is going to actually grow further. And it's going to be something that serves you and your partner. And so for me, I think the narrative is also an issue of like, how do we not lose ourselves? We'll also change the narrative and the threat that you believe the relationship is posing. One of the things that you said that is spot on is that if we're continuing to stay true to ourselves and then work on ourselves, the relationship will evolve because if we're constantly focusing on just the fact that you're in a relationship or you're, you're focusing on what your partner's doing, 
it's going to start to bring you down because you're going to spend less time focusing on yourself when you know that if you're not focusing on yourself, you're, you're not going to feel good. And then you're going to feel like you're not valued and all these things because you weren't staying true to yourself from the beginning. I was just going to say, if your relationship ends because you're being you, then that relationship probably should end anyways. And so it's almost like, you know, you did yourself a favor to an extent. Right. Absolutely. Because I mean, at the end of the day, like things, they, they happen for a reason and people in our life are in our life for seasons in many cases. And especially if we're using relationships in a way to help ourselves grow, to develop that sense of self, if you're being true to you and then the relationship seems to end, then you know, good for you for seeing it through and continuing to work on yourself through that process. And you'll be able to then use that experience to find a better partner the next time. One of the other things that I think can be done before dating somebody is is really making sure you ask the right questions other than like, what do you like to do for fun? Or where do you like to go on the weekends? Or just the basic questions. I think you can really get to know somebody a little bit deeper with just the right questions. And I know you talk about this. Like what are like if you were on a first date with somebody and you were trying to get to know them more to see if they were going to be a, a valuable partner or even like having the potential for a second date, what were some what would be some like non-negotiable questions you'd want to know? That's a hard one. Um, I think and you know, take it or leave it as an existentialist, obviously, but I think I'd want to know where they derive their sense of meaning. What gives them meaning in life? And that's a really important question because that will speak to their values, that will speak to their orientation in life, and that will also give you a bit of a heads up if their entire meaning is placed in that relationship, which although sounds very romantic, can become very unhealthy and detrimental and cause a lot of pressure. And so I'd be very curious of like, where do they derive meaning in life? Another question that's a bit fun, but can open the door towards more serious conversation is what is their favorite memory as a child? I'm really curious, what is that uninhibited joy when they were a child or that those connections that actually mattered? Or if they can't think of one, that's okay too. But then that can kind of speak to, okay, their family systems and dynamics. I think that's a great start because those are two that... Um, I've never asked before. Oh, and, there you go. And I've, see, and, and and there's those are also ones that I've never been asked on a first date. And I've been a, I've been asked about my childhood as I've gotten to know somebody more and and that sort of thing. And it's interesting. My my answer in the second question that you just asked, like, what's my favorite childhood memory, has has developed over the years because initially I was I had a lot of trauma growing up and I didn't work through some of it. So my answer would have would have been, well, I don't really have any memories that were positive. You know, and then as I've gotten older and even specifically in the last few years and I've done more work on that part of my life, I've come to realize that there were certain memories that were positive, maybe not in the the happy, happy, joy, joy way, but more so in how they've developed me as a man and in certain negative situations that happened, like have given me some really positive traits and outlooks on life because of that, which I think has deep meaning for me as well. That's beautiful. I, I really love that. And I think for me, that question's always been important because I experienced, you know, war trauma essentially as a child. And so being able to also ground objectively in the fact that, you know, there were times when it was really tough and there was a lot of chaos that was happening around me, but I also did have a really wonderful childhood and the two things can coexist. I think it's it's a beautiful way to grasp that concept, even just for yourself, even if you don't feel comfortable asking that, you know, on a first date. Right, right. I think it can be a really hard question to answer. I mean, especially if you've done some work on yourself, because it's like, shoot, if you don't have a positive memory, that person might think like, man, like they, they've got some stuff that they haven't dealt with. Right. But I think also on the flip side, I think the fact that somebody is like answering it openly and honestly, I think hopefully will create this bridge for connection with your partner because there's a lot of people that would just say you know what i don't feel like answering that or i don't know but i think if you give like a valid answer from the heart it's going to create some connection but also make it fun right yeah. like i feel like <laughs> when i ask that i sound like a therapist i'm like so what is your you know and i go all deep with it but if you're in a first date this can be a fun question you ask and they might be like, oh, I don't know. And you go, sweet. And you move on. Like, it does not have to be a huge deal. But I think it can be quite a telling 
question if you do choose to ask it whenever and with whichever tone you choose. With everything getting more and more expensive, I am constantly looking for new ways to cut costs and find savings and also help my personal training clients do the same. That's why when it comes to buying my organic groceries and household goods, I am all about Thrive Market. With Thrive Market, you can shop everything from healthy pantry essentials to sustainable meat and seafood to frozen fruits and vegetables and non-toxic beauty products. And they are all delivered right to your door. Thrive Market carefully vets every product they carry so you can trust that if it's there, it's the best. Finding savings on items that matter most to you is easy with Thrive Market. You can find what you need because they have over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products. So if you are looking for plant-based, keto, or gluten-free, Thrive Market has you covered. Some of the things that I've really been enjoying from them lately are their chicken breasts, their fish, and their frozen veggies. Plus, when you shop with Thrive Market, you can save time and gas by not having to make that trip to the store because you can buy everything you need online. And best of all, if you happen to find a lower price elsewhere, Thrive Market will match it. So join Thrive Market today to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Doug Fitness to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. Again, it's thrivemarket.com slash Doug Fitness. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to my friends at Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is cereal reinvented and it is my favorite cereal company on the market. Why? Because Magic Spoon cereals have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and it's only 140 calories per serving as well. Outside of the impressive nutrition label, the cereal also tastes amazing. The best way to try it is through the variety pack, which comes in four delicious flavors, fruity, frosted, cocoa, and my absolute favorite, peanut butter. So if you are anything like me and just love a good bowl of cereal, or if you're a mom or a parent looking to have a quick and healthy breakfast option, Magic Spoon is for you. Oh, and one more thing. It's also keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So go to magicspoon.com and enter in Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. Again, it's magicspoon.com and enter in promo code Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. Now back to the show. Right, right. Yeah, now I normally will bring up like something goofy I did when I was high on drugs. And like, I mean, there's this one time where I was, my friends and I, we were, we were all hanging out and I forget how, I was a teenager and I went to like jump off this tree and yeah, and I, and I was holding the rope as I was climbing up the tree to jump off this ledge to kind of gain some balance and brace myself a little bit. And when I jumped off, I forgot to let go of the rope. So I swung face first into the tree (laughs) it was was like george of the it was like literally like george of the jungle if you've seen that movie the rope like pinned me up by my my neck (gasps) i got pinned up by the rope and i I was saying to my my friends were all in the water because they were obviously way more coordinated than me and i said like what do i do and they were like doug let go of the rope and so i dropped into like a foot of mud or something but that's a story now that i could see like i'm smiling i know this is isn't we're not on video but you can see like the grin on my face because back then it was pretty miserable i was highly embarrassed but now as i look back i can laugh because i was like man like that was such a fun time or it's just i can't believe that i I did that and i can see how far i've come and and the reason i bring that up is and that just goes back to my point that sometimes like the memories that we think are negative can actually be something much more meaningful and positive if we change our perspective and how we choose to see them. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. You mentioned something that I think is is very, very important for people to hear. And that is not putting like essentially your entire meaning in life and self-worth into a relationship because it can set yourself up for some major resentments, some major regret, and to be frankly heartbroken. So with that said, like how does somebody when they're pursuing a relationship while trying to identify their sense of self like through that like how can they maintain that boundary with themselves that they don't put so much 
stock into wanting to make a relationship work early on and to protect themselves and their own energy and, and make sure that they're really taking care of and nourishing themselves like along that initial process. Because I know a lot of people when they, when they first get excited about a relationship, like they're all in, right? Until like the first bad thing happens and they pull way back and then, then they're not all in and then the relationship starts to fall apart. Yeah. And I don't think it's as much about not investing in that relationship or really being weary about investing. Cause I do think, you know, the whole play hard to get and all these games, like that is probably a fairly sure way to ruin a relationship. <laughs> so I do think that it's okay to invest and, and, you know, be excited and all that, but we equally can't stop investing in ourselves. And this is what we usually do. We, we take the energy we would have dedicated maybe to us or to another friendship, and then we just move it over. And it's not about shifting the energy. It's about providing energy to both aspects, the relationship and yourself. And so I think it's about that. We talk about self-love a lot, which I think is so lovely. But before self-love, we need to first have self-acceptance and then usually self-respect. And then after that, self-like and then probably self-love. And, you know, it's an ongoing journey. And I think the more that we learn to respect who we are. And I think that one's really key and maybe a bit more tangible than love for a lot of us. We're going to really respect our own time, our decisions, our engagements. And that's going to be really, that's going to change how we invest in the relationship, not necessarily how much. Right, right. Yeah, I think that process is so important because in order to like really love yourself, you have to know what it is about you that you love, right? And you have to be yeah. able to- who you are. Yeah, who you are, what you <laughs> yeah. stand for, like why you're trying to get into the, the relationship in the first place. And there, there's this huge push, and it's been like this over the last few years, to, to honor yourself, self-love, put yourself first, which I think is very important, as we've hinted at a few times in the conversation so far. I also think it can be problematic when people completely idealize that rhetoric when they're in a relationship and that they have a hard time with conflict because they're like, oh, like if I'm loving myself, that means I have to be right. Or if I'm loving myself, that means I have to get all my needs met or whatever. And that's not how relationships work. So, so how do you think, how can somebody find the balance with like obviously loving themselves, but also like knowing when you're in a relationship, like it takes sacrifice. It takes admitting when you're wrong. Like how do, how do you navigate that? I think if all you want to do is love yourself, you probably shouldn't be in a relationship, <laughs> you know, then stay in the relationship with yourself. And I know I'm being cheeky, but it's every relationship is going to require work and sacrifice and effort, which is not the same as pain, by the way, like they're very different things. But understanding that preserving your self-respect and your self-love should not take away from respecting and loving the relationship and the other person. So a really healthy relationship will honor you, your partner, and the relationship. So the three entities, so to speak. And if all you can manage in a relationship is to honor yourself and not the other two, something's not working quite right in that relationship. Either you're not, you know, you're not being involved enough, you're not being flexible enough. I think what happens with this movement is people become a bit rigid and they become so scared to give anything because they're like, I need to love myself. And then it becomes so extreme that it becomes really like self-centered and, <laughs> and you know, and, and it's okay because people need to overcorrect a little bit. But I think realizing that, you know, honoring you is just part of the equation. When you're in a relationship, it is not the entire equation. Yeah, so well said because I think at the end of the day, like there are these three parts, like there's honoring yourself, there's honoring your partner and there's honoring the relationship. Like I, it comes down to like my understanding, like honoring your own needs and then honoring help doing what you can to help honor your partner's needs in whatever way that to support them. And then honoring the needs of the relationship, whether that's time to take a course together, go to therapy, go have fun, like whatever it is and like all that together will make the relationship hopefully run as efficient as possible. One of the other buzzwords that's been thrown out a lot is the word toxic. Yeah. And yeah. you hear like, he's toxic, <laughs> she's toxic, I'm in a toxic relationship. And obviously th that can be very, very true and, and exist. Absolutely. Quite a bit. But I also think those terms get way overstated. So 
what's the difference between like somebody who's just going through a hard time in a relationship and a relationship that's specifically toxic? You know, I don't even like the word toxic because what does it actually mean? Like, does it pollute you? I don't, you know, like everyone has very different definitions. I think when I hear someone say the relationship is toxic, my takeaway is like the relationship is not working. Like, how do you spot the difference between somebody who's in a toxic relationship or just going through like a rough spot in a relationship? Probably how chronic it is. I mean, every relationship will have a tough spot and probably severity as well. So duration and severity will take it from we're having, you know, a rough couple days to this relationship is probably a bit detrimental for me. And a great way to do that is like, and you know, I'd have clients do this. I'd be like, great. So I want every week for you to write the theme of your relationship or every three days to write the theme of your relationship. If this theme is negative for months, then you've probably, you know, maybe you're still in a rough phase, but you know, chances are you have some more severe issues that need to be worked through. And so really paying attention of like the impact the relationship has on us, the severity and the duration can probably tell us which category we're kind of in. But it's context dependent, right? So that's really difficult to answer of like, maybe something really bad happens once and you're not going to let it happen again. <laughs> so, but you know, that, that would probably be more in the abuse category. And I think the problem with overusing the word toxic too, is that it, it, then it, you begin to overlook like the people who are really in toxic relationships where there is abuse and, and stuff like that. Of course. Because everyone's now using the word toxic, so it's becoming less powerful because it's almost normalized that, oh, that person's toxic. And when you say, well, what are they doing? They're like, oh, like they haven't responded to my texts in like five hours. And it's like, well, they might just be busy or or maybe like they just need some space or whatever. Like that to me is not, I wouldn't toxic. say that's toxic. That might be just a communication issue that's going on. And, and that's what's maybe at the root of that. I also feel people use it sometimes, and this is not going to be a hot take for everyone, as a way not to take responsibility. Like when, you know, it's like, if you see a post and everyone's like, my partner is toxic and my partner is toxic, it's like, what are the chances that everyone's partner was toxic? And what are the chances that this relationship didn't work out, but the narrative that got constructed made them the bad guy and you the good guy. And that's not maliciously done. I think it's the way we perceive our, or want to protect the way we see ourselves. We don't want to see ourselves as the bad guy. And so then sometimes we place the blame on someone else. And so the word toxic, I think has also become a very convenient way for people not to take responsibility for their part in the relationship not working out. Again, huge disclaimer, this is, has nothing to do with abuse or people who are in abusive relationships or very unhealthy relationship, but more just like your example, or, you know, it didn't work out. He was so toxic, but in reality, it's like, I did not do the things that I was meant to do for this relationship to succeed. And maybe they, you know, followed suit. Yeah. What I've noticed is like the more time goes on after a breakup or after a relationship ends, your, your view in many cases of your partner changes for the positive. Cause initially you're, essentially your, your, your anger, you're angry as heck and you're pointing the finger at everything they did wrong and how they made the relationship fail. And then as time goes on and you've, you're feeling less heated about it and you've essentially disconnected or detached, you're like, Oh, like, here's what I could have done better. Or here's how I could have handled this situation. Or this, this maybe wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And then you start to see that relationship again, going back to what we said at the beginning as, as a moment of healing for us and not necessarily like something that completely ruined our lives. And, and that's not that that's just completely, like you said, different from actually like actual abusive relationships. I'm just talking in the context of the, the, the average relationship where people are just throwing out the word toxic, like it's going out of style. One of the other things that I think is, is often overlooked in relationships is certain red flags. Like obviously there's, there's certain red flags that are pretty obvious that, you know, if somebody says they're still in a relationship, that's kind of a red flag, I would assume, <laughs> right? If, if they're looking yeah. for monogamy, if somebody's constantly talking bad about their ex, if somebody's constantly canceling on you early on in the relationship, those are probably some, some red flags that are more obvious. Like, like in some of your experience, maybe it's with your clients or people online, or even just some of your content, like what are you, what are some red flags that you're trying to educate people on that might not be so obvious? Yeah. And I think probably these red flags have more to do with us than the other person. And this is why they're less obvious. But for example, if you find that you're constantly betraying yourself to stay in the relationship, 
that's a red flag. And that, you know, may have something to do with them, but it may absolutely not have anything to do with them. It's just your way of engaging. And if a relationship doesn't make you feel safe enough to show up authentically, or maybe you don't know how to do that yet, that might be a red flag for that relationship. So I think our own behaviors can also be red flags, which I think is important to note. Or, you know, maybe we don't really want to be in this relationship and we're looking for reasons and the red flags. Maybe you spend hours scrolling through red flags to see if your partner can fit some of them as like an excuse. But in reality, you don't actually feel like you genuinely want to stay. And it's really hard to walk away depending on what your history is and your relationship with abandonment and rejection and needing people in your life. And so I I think some of the red flags can just be how we are experiencing and showing up in a relationship. So I tried to give you some obscure ones since you hit on all the really good ones that we talk about quite a bit. Paying attention to our own behaviors in a relationship is something that I think does get missed because we're always focusing on what it is about them that is wrong with a relationship instead of like, again, developing that sense of self, like you've talked about that level of self-awareness to say like, how am I behaving in this relationship? Like, am I becoming my, my best self? Do I feel secure? Am I doing things, you know, out of character to please this person? Am I still upholding the same boundaries that I had day one? Like, where am I at with myself and how I'm behaving in the context of this relationship. I think that's such an important point. And I'm, I'm really glad you touched on that because that's something that I'm going to start to pay more attention to moving forward. You talk about self-awareness. You talk about the sense of self. I feel like when people are in relationships that aren't serving them, they've lost that. So it can be challenging when they're in that state of mind to know whether or not they should end the relationship or not, because they're already second guessing themselves. Maybe their self-confidence or self-esteem has been beaten down so much that they don't even know who they are anymore, or they're questioning whether they've been the cause of this. So what are some steps that somebody can take to know a, like, should they leave this relationship that they're in or, or stick it out? And B, I guess the second part is like, how do they do it in a way that's going to be healthy and safe and that they're going to actually feel better about moving forward? Oh, knowing what to do. I mean, knowing when to break up is such, it's so difficult. And sometimes we're so in it that it's hard to have perspective. So I would say gaining perspective can be very helpful. Obviously, having self-trust is key. But if that's shaky for us, and it is often shaky for us, if we've you know just stayed in a relationship that wasn't serving us for a long time, I think read some books, go to therapy, talk to your friends. I'm very curious, like, what will your friends say? How will they characterize the relationship? And not like any friend, like people you genuinely respect, unless you've hid a lot of things from them, and then be honest with yourself about the fact that they won't have an accurate representation of that relationship. But I think the key, and this may look different for absolutely everyone, is try to gain some perspective, because it's so, so hard. And I think the second part of your question was how to do that in a way that serves us, like how to move on. And I think a huge thing is what are the lessons you're taking away? I think it's really hard for us to leave something and for it to feel meaningless, you know, and some people are like, well, I invested so much. So now I have to stay or they're crushed by the fact that now, like, what did that even mean? Like, why did I even do that? And I think something that can help ease that discomfort is finding lessons. Like, what did I take away? How am I going to grow as a result of this? How is it going to inform my next relationship? And make it very practical and tangible for yourself. Yeah, I think that's all I have now, but maybe I'll have more once you spark. Those are two very big questions. (laughs) So I got (laughs) overwhelmed by the questions. Yeah. And I think perspective is definitely important. And being open to criticism both ways right like and especially if it's somebody that you trust like i'm i'm fortunate where i'm in a business as a trainer where i train a lot of people that are older than me that have been married for a long time or even people that have been divorced and just they have a lot of life experience that i can go to them and ask them certain questions and they can just shoot it straight i don't always listen but i at least I personally listen. I don't always listen and take action in the way that I probably should have based on what they said. But I think that's important. And being open to criticism, to, to hearing like, hey, like this relationship, like 
doesn't look good. Like every time I, I see you guys together, you're always fighting. Or every time I see you, like after you hang out with that person, you're always complaining about how, how hard it was or whatever the case may be. And then, or the other side of criticism is you're being too hard on your partner. You are, you know, not taking care of yourself. Unrealistic you expectations. Are, yeah, unrealistic expectations. And you have to be willing to receive the criticism in a way that is conducive to who you want to be. And I think that's really hard for people to, to hear sometimes, Sarah, because like I said, or like you said, we always want to point to the other person to say, those are red flags in that person, or they did that wrong, which I'm sure there's obviously truth to that. It takes two to tango, but we really struggle with looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, eh, I should have seen that coming, my bad, or I shouldn't have done that, or fill in the blank. And so I think taking accountability for all that is so important. I think we need to stop apologizing for relationships not working out for us. I feel like there's so much sense of like failure and guilt. And of course, there's, you know, respectful ways to do that. But it's okay if relationships end. And I think when you talk about moving on in a way that serves us, it's also just accepting that this is sometimes part of life and not necessarily having to apologize or be ashamed for the fact that a relationship didn't work out. And I think when you add those components, it just makes the ending so much more dramatic and potentially traumatic that it's just like, I'm not going to apologize for the fact I couldn't make this relationship work. And I say that very generally, not like you should apologize for things that you've done that are wrong. That's not what I mean. But it's like, it's okay if your mom really likes your boyfriend and you decide to break up with him. Like this is, you shouldn't be apologizing to your mom. <laughs> you shouldn't feel like a failure. And I think that that's a lot of pressure. So to move on, I think, again, it's changing that narrative of what it means for a relationship to end. Well said. I think one of the biggest pressures is the societal expectations that get put on people. Like, I don't know how it is in, in Australia, but here in the States, I think it's changed over the years, but I would say for the longest time, there's been this narrative that, all right, you go to you go to school, you go to college, you graduate, you fall in love, you get married, you have kids, you have a white picket fence, and you live happily ever after. <laughs> and people mm -hmm. are constantly trying to fit that narrative and doing whatever they can to fit it, no matter if it means sacrificing their own mental health, if it means sacrificing their own sense of self or their identity or or whatever. And then people end up divorced, people end up lost, people end up miserable in these relationships. So what advice do you have for somebody that maybe they're in their 20s and they haven't found the right partner or somebody that just got divorced and they're like, man, like I'm feeling all this pressure to get back into a relationship so that I can have kids or get married again or whatever. What advice do you have for someone that to, to not fall into that trap and just really, really pay attention to what they want? I think you just said it. It's really spending more time on figuring out what you want rather than spending time on figuring out how to get what you think you should want. Direct that energy into really sitting and being like, I'm uncomfortable. There's all these pressures are coming my way, telling me exactly who I need to be and what I need to like and need and want. But I really want to sit with myself and figure out what those things are, truly are for me. And I think that there is no time limit. <laughs> I know society just puts these time pressures on us. And I think Gen Zers are much better at stepping away from that to some extent. But and I think millennials started to but I think, you know, you can have the picket fence life and be miserable. And if that doesn't work for you, then figure out what else you want. And ultimately, you have to live your life for yourself. Because if you live it for someone else, you'll feel like you lost your life, like it will lose a sense of meaning and self and all the things you talked about. So, you know, before you rush, it doesn't have to be full of action packed. It's okay to just sit there and enjoy your time with yourself and enjoy exploring. And you know what, you might have to do it multiple times throughout your life. Maybe what you wanted in your 20s will be different than what you wanted in your 40s. And that's what makes life so interesting and wonderful and fluid. And I think when we look at life from A to B, and you either succeed or fail, this is where, you know, our mental health really suffers. Yeah. I mean, there's, I love the idea of unanswered prayers. There's this country song by uh, Garth Brooks who talks about, essentially he had prayed for this, but I believe he prayed for this relationship to work out with his like high school sweetheart. And then it didn't. 
and then he got married to somebody else and they went back to like a homecoming game and they saw he saw this girl that he thought he was gonna marry and then he prayed for and he like thanked god for unanswered prayers (laughs) because he was and and the reason i bring this up is that like i think that happens a lot where something that we prayed for wanted wanted to manifest whatever you call it worked for yeah worked for worked out for something else that was better and you look back and you're like i'm so thankful that that part of my life didn't end up the way i wanted to in that moment and when it comes to dealing with a breakup or rejection i mean there's there's no easy way i don't think to do it i mean i think there's there's obviously there's different tools there's things that probably would make it worse but i think it's painful no matter how you handle it in your experience or even with just some of the content that you're sharing with your audience like what are some simple things somebody can do when they're going through a breakup to help mitigate some of that pain and not they don't so they don't fall into the cycle of immediately wanting to date when they're not ready or even falling into addiction or anything like that i mean again context will matter the way you handle hurt will matter but i think you know give it time i think we need to understand the pain will just be a part of it and that's really difficult but it's not going to last forever. And just having this understanding that, you know, I'm suffering because I'm processing and I'm grieving, and this is actually going to make me feel better in the long run is allowing myself to, you know, experience what I'm experiencing. And I think something to keep in mind with dating immediately, although it may work for some and that's awesome, but you're also potentially adding more space for further pain. So if you're already in pain and then you go on a first date where the person rejects you and then you go another first date and the person rejects you, that might be really difficult to crawl out of. And so it's just, you know, dating is great and you should figure out your own timing. There is no right or wrong timing. But if you feel very sensitive to any form of rejection or any negative experience that's added, then it might not be a good time just because you want to protect yourself and that's okay. I think also realizing when it comes to rejection, sometimes it's about us and sometimes it's really not about us. And we can be a great person, but we might not be the right person for them, right? So it's just being really careful of how we talk about it, how we conceptualize it, the mean things we may or may not say to ourselves, and then just reaffirming all that we can offer and all the ways in which we can grow. In my own experience, I've noticed that when I've gone out and tried to to date too soon it bites me in the butt because going out with somebody for a first date or even a second date and i'm like seeing gosh like i have nothing in common with this person long term like why am i doing this and i I never wanted to be a a person personally that just dated to date not that i want to date somebody and have a plan to get married but i never want to date somebody just to to get validation or attention that i wasn't giving myself and that was like a lesson that that i've learned over the last couple of years was making sure I was giving myself the space and the time to work on myself, not necessarily hide from relationships, but really do the work on me and knowing that whatever was meant to come as a result of that romantically in my life would as a result of me working on myself. And I was going to attract that person because if I was somebody that was still beaten down emotionally just for, from going through a breakup, I was going to likely attract somebody else who maybe wasn't in a good headspace either. So, I mean, that was just my theory. And again, maybe it could be different from other people, but that was just what worked for me. I love it. And I think we also have to think about what can we contribute to a new relationship at this point. And again, it depends why you're dating or whatever, but it's, you know, if you're in a lot of pain and you're just hoping that they will make you feel better, but you won't have to give anything chances are that relationship is going to fail. And maybe you want to give something, but you just feel like you don't have anything to give at this moment. So thinking about like the three parts of the relationship is is really important of like, are you in a space where you can honor all three? And if not, are you okay with having relationships that might not, you know, work out in the best way? I guess it's going to go into like the last thing I want to talk to you about. And that is that people have this idea that they have to be happy all the time in life. And if they're not happy, they feel that they're a failure. They feel that they're unsuccessful. And I think many people use relationships as a form of happiness in their lives. And as we've said, we're meant to to coexist and and be in relation with others, but not in in a way where we're losing our identity and not having our own sense of self. So with, with that said, like, what are some ways 
that people can be comfortable with not being happy all the time. So that when they're having a bad day or when they're going through a breakup and just stuff just isn't good mentally and emotionally, they're okay with that. And they can move on with that with, with some sort of peaceful outlook. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, you know, toxic positivity (laughs) there. I combined the two words, positive and toxic. Great. I mean, it's, it's the, the worst of both. No, I'm just kidding. But I just feel like there's so much pressure that our natural state of existence should be a happy one. And I'm not really sure where that comes from. And so I think realizing that that's not true and it's not possible, but also that maybe that's not even the goal, right? I think if you're only going to experience positive things, it means that there's a bunch of your existence that you're ignoring or suppressing. So if you're trying to figure out who you are and what you should do, you're going to have a really freaking hard time doing that. If all you're noticing is a very small sliver of your existence and everything else you're either faking or ignoring. And so I think there's just such a benefit to experiencing the good and the bad that we don't talk about. And so again, it's this like, I shouldn't be feeling this way or I should be over it by now or like it hurts too much. And I think it can be really helpful to go, I'm going to direct my existence towards feeling fulfilled. And I do think fulfillment really you know, comes hand in hand with feeling content and happy. And so to feel fulfilled, I need to understand how I'm existing in this world. And part of that is just allowing myself to feel what comes and I don't have to dwell in it. I don't have to think about it all the time. You know, I don't have to go over my threshold, but I just need to be aware so I can take responsibility and make decisions and do things that matter to me and connect to the people that I love. And so I think that our perception of happiness right now and that push towards always being positive is actually preventing people from being in healthy relationships with themselves and others. I think our perception of what happiness actually looks like and how often it occurs has been hijacked by social media because many times you're only seeing like the highlight reels, you're seeing all these in many cases, Pollyanna quotes and these things that people post like, oh, just be happy. And, you know, you are your energy and all these things, which I mean, I think there's obviously a place for that. But I also think it, it gives this, it puts on this facade to people that when they're going through something horrible in their life, or they're feeling stressed, that they all of a sudden need to snap out of it and be happy. And I think that's just not true at all. I think people sometimes have to go through the motions, feel the feels. And not helpful. Yeah. And Does it help to be optimistic? Certainly. It it helps to be optimistic and say, I'm going to get through this. This is a challenge, but I know I will get to the other side. And I think that's way different than saying, I should be happy that I'm going through this divorce. I should be happy that I'm like... It's the gratitude. I mean, because there's some things in life that you shouldn't be happy. Yeah. No. And people, I just got asked this in a QA. and a They were like, are you always grateful? And I was like, no. Like, I don't force gratitude. I don't actually, and you know, there's lots of practices and I think they're great and I think they work for different people. But for me, forcing myself to feel grateful for things I don't feel grateful, being like, I'm so grateful I lost my job, whatever. Like, that's absurd. So for me, it's like, I can be grateful that I still have a roof over my house if I lost my job. But I think it's important to find things you're actually grateful for or be open to gratitude But forcing gratitude is the same thing as forcing positivity, forcing happiness. And honestly, if if the word forcing (laughs) can be applied in front of the word, you know, it's like we shouldn't be doing it. And so I think with the happiness, it's the whole positivity, gratitude movement, which started off with the best of intentions, but I think kind of took over. Now people feel ashamed when they can't do these things. I think sometimes when somebody's really, really feeling low about themselves and and they're in that mindset, it's really, really hard to figure out something they're actually grateful for because their outlook on life is so jaded because of the situation that, that, that they're in. And obviously, it's not healthy to stay in that mindset forever, but... I don't think it's healthy either to just say, oh, well, you should just find like 50 things that you're grateful for or 10 things that you're grateful for. I mean, there's certain things that work better for other people, right? Being of of service can help, getting outside and moving your body, right? Like these are all things that we know can help. But I think this idea that you have to just all of a sudden be happy and grateful for, for life and walk around like you just won the lottery every single day, I think is just it's not realistic. And I think it's honestly, I think it's having more of an impact, a negative impact than we think. I would agree with that. And I think it 
doesn't allow that authenticity piece. Again, I'm not saying you should be smashing things and pushing puppies and whatever if you're upset, but I think it's really important for us to accept whatever state we're in and whatever version of ourselves we're in, even if we want to move forward. It's like that, but you can't accept something unless you're aware of it. And this is why awareness really boils down to like, you know, being aware of the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. Right. So I guess like when you're going through something like challenging like that, where you're feeling off, or you're not feeling in your in your best self, like what is a simple tool to help somebody develop some awareness around like what they're going through, what they're feeling? I think just accepting that it's okay, being really gentle. You know, when I have bad days, I go, I'm having a bad day and that's it. <laughs> like I'm not, of course, if that persists, I'd be like, what do I need to do immediately to make that change? But like oftentimes just allowing myself to have a bad day comes with all the tools and the needs, you know, they, they, they reemerge. I'll go, I'm having a bad day. And then slowly I'll be like, Oh, maybe I need to move my body. Oh, maybe I should, you know, and it's just kind of being in this communication, gently checking in, seeing if there's, you know, something you need. If you know, you have a pattern of being like, maybe I didn't leave the house for four days, then you can, you know, rely on that pattern and go like, okay, so I need to leave my house. I, I tend to do this. So it's just for me personally, what really works is accepting it, being gentle with it, not trying to solve it and allowing myself to speak and go, this is what I need. Of course, if you're, you know, suffering from clinical depression, that's, you know, different. Um, there's different things that might be experienced differently. But if you're just having a bad day, sometimes all you need is just to be really gentle, be like, I'm your best friend. I'll take care of you today. Take your time. I love that. Like acceptance is so important when you're, when it comes to like having a hard time or, or going through a, a bad phase, because a lot of times people will feel ashamed and they'll get in that shame cycle and they'll end up making whatever they're going through worse or prolonging that because now they're caught up in, a, in an even lower sense of self or negative self-esteem because of the thoughts that they're telling themselves around that, that shame cycle. So, Sarah, this has been awesome. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for having me. I love your questions. Thank you. You provide such great insight and wisdom. If people want to connect with you, if they want to read your column on USA Today, like where's the best place for the, for people to find you? Yeah, so Instagram is definitely my most active platform. So that's millennial.therapist. That's my handle. I am on Facebook and Twitter under my name, which is Sarah Kubrick. And yes, I do have a call on my USA Today. So if you just type in my name, that will pop up and I write once a week. So there's plenty of content there and it's usually relationship focused. So if that's your thing, that could be a really nice supplement to the Instagram. Sweet. Well, I'll make sure to include that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Sarah said about the questions on a first date. Maybe it was something that she said about like mental health in relationships. Maybe it's something that she said about sense of self whatever it was, tag her and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.